fall into the theology bit. everybody welcome back to the theology pit this is theology out of pittsburgh and not like a bottomless pit because you know what we say here when you fall into a bottomless pit you will die of dehydration but this is the theology pit we keep you well hydrated your skin stays soft and nice by listening to the theology pit your internal organs work well because they are completely hydrated with theology from the theology pit hey i'm glad that you're with me I'm glad that you're listening, and I'm glad that you have stuck through this series with me. This series, I've decided that this podcast here, this is part 22 of salvation, specifically of justification, and I'm going to end it here because I've said pretty much all I think that is important on the history of this topic, and this last podcast here is... Well, it's sort of going to be a wrap-up. It's sort of going to be a summary. But we are going to look at the way I have viewed all of these things. So this whole podcast is going to be my opinion and my point of view. And this is going to be, you know, covetism is what it is. I'm, of course, your host, Samson Kovach. So this covetism is the uh, soteriology. It's a sociological understanding and understanding the application of the atonement, what Christ's death meant to us and why, and what I believe. And you'll see why it agrees with some doctrines, Calvinism, Arminianism, recapitulation view of the atonement, satisfaction view of the atonement. Um, There are parts of it that Roman Catholics would agree with. There are parts of it that, um, you know, Presbyterians would agree with, Baptists would agree with. Uh, I'm going to walk through, but there's a lot. All of those groups would totally disagree with. And that's kind of where, you know, I hover with all this stuff. And hopefully you will too. You'll see the tension in some of this stuff, but you'll also see, you know, the, um, the, the similarities, the reasoning behind it. And I'm not saying that my understanding of the atonement is perfect at all. What I'm trying to say is that I think that the way we understand scripture and the way we understand history and the way we understand the creeds and the councils and what the Holy Spirit has been doing in educating us and teaching us as a whole, I want to synthesize all that for you now. So really, to start with this, we have to start from the beginning. We have to get this understanding of, you know, not only what does it mean that Jesus Christ died for us, that preposition for, with the application of the atonement, but the necessity behind it, why it was even necessary, and what the problems were in the first place. Now, when it comes to this whole concept of free will, let's just get this out of the way, you know, right off the bat. I do not believe that we have free will. I would say no to that. Now, I would say no to it in the same way, I I suppose, that most Armenians would say yes to it, that we have the power of contrary choice. But here's the difference. I don't look at us as fallen creatures and say, did we retain free will? I look back at Adam and say, were we even 
created to have free will in the first place. And by free will, do you mean libertarian free will? And we went over this in the whole free will series. And that's why I would say, no, we go with what our greatest desire is. We are not truly free in that sense. We are free to choose between things that are in front of us, yes or no, but we are not able to, of our own volition, come up with something and go to it or, you know, to not be influenced to where when we make a decision, we do it in a vacuum. I believe that the reason why there was a fall is because of Satan. If you wouldn't have had the serpent in the garden in the first place, then, you know, you wouldn't have had this introduction of a, I would say this, uh, that choice type thing, not, not trying to use choice in, in a negative way, but what I'm trying to say is you wouldn't have that influence of sinning, which is missing the mark and, and moving in that direction. Our influence was always with God. And so even in the garden, I don't see us having free will. So that takes out the whole, you know, argument between do we have free will or not? I, I don't believe that we ever did. So if I don't believe that we ever did, then I don't believe that there is anything there to argue with. Now, where Arminians would say, well, yes, we do have free will because we have the ability to choose between accepting Christ or rejecting Christ. Okay, I would agree with them there. With the Arminians in this point, I completely agree with. Okay, and I, I agree with it, though, to different levels. But what I don't do is I don't call that free will. I just call that what we are created to be. That's that's what we are. Um, if you want to call that free will and you say, well, Sam, you actually do believe in free will. You just need to accept it. All right, fine. I'll, I'm good with that. But uh, in my definition of free will, that's not what I consider it. Um, I don't consider it to be, I consider free will to be libertarian free will. And I believe that only God has free will that the rest of created creation does not because of his influence on creation and the fact that if he can pull himself away from certain areas, if he can uh, veil his glory, veil his goodness, veil his grace and mercy and uh, keep it, you know, I don't want to say partition it, separate it, that sort of thing. But the fact that, you know, God is able to, and I think everybody would, would agree with this, that, you know, God's grace is able to be more concentrated in some areas than other. Now, when I say that, you know, God's essence, his being, that God is, is all present. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. I don't mean that he's present everywhere as though he's part of everything or that, you know, he's the invisible part of everything that we, when we look around, we, we see through. I believe that everything is in his presence, not that he has a spatial location that is everywhere. And that's different. Um, so there actually can be a place called hell where God has veiled himself, has removed himself. There can be blessings where God has given more of himself 
in this area, pulled himself back. It can appear to us as a spatial you know, requirement, a spatial limitation, but it's, it's truly not, since God is non-corporeal, God is spirit. So what happens is at the fall, you have Adam and Eve making this choice, and this choice then started to change them. It made a a radical movement, a, a radical separation, a separating between them and God. Uh, God said to them, you know, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, then that day you will surely die. And they did, not that particular day, but they died. And when you read after the, the generations, it's, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. And it's a constant refrain, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died, to show like how far. Now, it seems that as humanity is getting further and further away, this it's almost like with a, an old-fashioned copier machine that's running out of ink, and we're getting to the last pages where it's, there's, you know, it's difficult to see uh, what's actually on there. Because here, you have a sinful fallen man right at the beginning of sin, but yet he still had the direct one-on-one correlation with God. And his body would start to deteriorate at that point. But also, man is more than just the physical. He's also spiritual. And let's just say for a moment that the spirit is directly connected to the consciousness, that it's all the immaterial part is the way that I'm using the word spirit uh, spirit here. Or I might use like other words, soul, I might use for uh, consciousness. All these things I'm saying are the immaterial part of us, the material and immaterial. To look at it and say, the material is starting to break down, but the immaterial is what God is preserving. I believe that to be a Gnostic understanding or a Stoic understanding that everything physical is evil, everything spiritual is good. And I, I reject that, and I think the scripture rejects that because God created things and said it was good. He created the earth and said it was good. He created man and said it was good. Um, he did all of these certain things. And because of this, I believe that as we have gotten further and further away, because mentally we are at a disadvantage as we are physically, you know, according to scripture and whether or not you hold to this, it it really doesn't matter. It's, it's the importance of uh, the message of it here is that, you know, it says Adam lived 900 years, but people today barely live a hundred years. So there seems to be this decay of the body that I don't want to say it's speeding up, but it seems to have hit its limit and it's, it's just, constantly falling down and we have to constantly fight against uh things against you know the 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 physicality of things uh and that that is what um that is is what you know the 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 importance of the modern medicine and, and what's come in and then you think about psychology i mean it's only been the last what 100 years 100 and 20 years 
that psychology has uh, been a profession, I believe. I mean, I don't, don't quote me on that. Um, because we happen to see that, yes, we do, in fact, need help in these areas. And perhaps you can make the argument that things are getting worse and worse with the mentality of human beings. It seems that, you know, people way back when, when we look at like the wonders of the world, they seem to have a better grasp on their surroundings. They seem to have a better grasp on uh, what, what it, I don't want to say what it meant to be human, but uh, the way mathematics work, the way certain uh, things happen, scientific things. Um, And then there, there seemed to be a point where, you know, the physical and the mental and the spiritual all kind of came together epistemologically for human beings. And the reason why we have modern science is because the mind was able to rationally understand the concept of a deity, but not only a deity that is not involved, but a theistic understanding, which puts a deity directly involved, which allows us to say things were created, which allows us to say that things were created for a specific purpose. And if they're created for a specific purpose, then we should be able to predict what they do. And if we can predict what they do, then we should be able to do tests. And if we can do a test on something and we can repeat that test over and over again, then that is definitive evidence of a theistic transcendent God, a God that's involved because our hypothesis would come from this philosophical logic. So we used philosophy to develop the scientific method based on the assumption of a deity that was in time and space with us, able to interact with us, and that because of that, our studies and our experiments actually do repeat because there was a design for that. Now, as we get further along, maybe it's harder for us to think through these things because of it. And a lot of people have said, you know, well, why does God insist on perfection when nobody can do it? You know, I mean, if that is the case, you know, what if God said, well, mankind has to run 100 miles an hour, and if he doesn't run on foot 100 miles an hour, then therefore he's not good enough. People say, well, we don't have the ability to do that. If we don't have the ability to do that, then, you know, where, where are you coming up with this? How can this even be a reasonable thing? But that's not what he says. And what kind of gets me is that what he requires is absolute perfection. What we were able to do in the garden, what Adam was able to do was absolute perfection. He did it. He achieved it. He did it. He was doing it. It wasn't until he missed the mark, until he sinned, that things started moving downward because he was able to do it. It was totally possible at that time. And God still holds us to the perfection that we were able to do before all of this happened, before everything happened. People who 
have a, a uh, mental handicap. You don't say to them, hey, you need to stop being like that. You recognize the problem. And you recognize the problem and say, there's nothing we can do about it. You can't tell them to say, hey, be smarter. You know, no, that, that doesn't work. No matter what they do, they can't. Okay? It's not their fault. If somebody is born with fetal alcohol syndrome because of something that their parents did, you know, that child still technically has to function in society. Not technically, it actually does. It has to function in society. And if it doesn't, if it breaks the law, then that law still stands. And they still have to be judged by it. They're, they're judged as though they have the ability, even if they don't. And that's what's going on here. When God has put these laws in place, when he has put things in place that he is saying, like the Ten Commandments and, and the, the law that you read in the Old Testament, the one that said Paul that Paul said in the New Testament, nobody can do. Nobody searches for God. Nobody does what's right. Even he does, and he has a desire to, and, and, and nobody did. They couldn't. Why? Because of the fall. Because of the effect of sin. Because of the transmission of of sin because Adam was our federal head in a ideal way that he represented us, but also in a very physical way. And this is why I'm bumping my microphone. This is why I'm a traducian that I believe that mankind, we make the body and the soul. We create both and they, and they come from us and they are represented. Now, if you don't believe that, if you say, well, no, God creates the soul and man just creates the body, well, then, yeah, my entire theory here, throw it out the window. Because you would say, no, God creates the soul and therefore he doesn't make things that are imperfect. So he would have to make something that is perfect. And so something that's perfect is either corrupted by the flesh because nobody's denying that man makes the flesh. Nobody's saying that, well, you know, I don't know how my wife got pregnant. She just got pregnant all of a sudden. Just, it just kind of happened. Nobody says that because we, it's something that we can see and it's something we can understand and it's something that we can experience. It's tangible. It's right there. But with the spirit, with the mind, people say, no, that's what God created, and that's perfect. And that's why a lot of times people will say, well, no, I want to know the real you, not what I'm seeing in front of me. Well, what you're seeing in front of me is the real me, okay? If you're just looking at the physical, that's not all of me, but that is as much me as the immaterial part is me, okay? And the parents created that. My father passed away when I was nine years old. My brother was six years old at the time. He died of cancer. But yet, without the influence, my brother tells me he barely remembers him. But yet my mom says that my brother acts just like him, walks just like him, stands just like him. Zero influence on him. Because he dying of cancer, it, it, it took a while. He wasn't, he, you know, he wasn't around. He was in the hospital. You know, I mean, I remember so much. But, you know, there there was not that, that influence, you know, that, that mimicking that my brother would have done at that time. But yet he still acts just like him, not only physically looks like him, but acts like him as well. How is that possible? Only within a traducian explanation. Do you have that when you get to a creationist aspect of it? You, you don't have that. You're just like, well, I don't know. Genes somehow it's just it's transmitted through the physical. I don't know. 
Um, I mean, you're kind of stretching there a little bit in my opinion. So if you hold to that, then of course you're going to say that there has to be a free will and it's the way that we relate to God and, you know, all that stuff with the, with the creationist view. Um, but as a traducian, which I think is much more plausible, I think that it's better understood in scripture. And when God created man, he created him physical and material and immaterial. Okay. Physical and spiritual. All right. When he judges at the end of the age, he judges the whole person. He does not judge a spirit. And he does not judge a body. It's a body-soul unity that, you know, we are one. We are incomplete. When we are fractured at death because of sin, it is incomplete. It's it's like we're, we're naked, as Paul says. But in the book of Revelation, that at the judgment, even um, Hades and the sea give up the dead, and they are resurrected also. And then they are judged. And then that's where the lake of fire comes in. It doesn't come in before that. God is not judging half people. He's not judging spirits and sending them to hell. He judges whole people. Everything in scripture is about the whole person. Whenever Adam and Eve have their first child, Eve says, look, I have made man just like God. Just like God. And God has made us material and immaterial. I think this is a very powerful reason for traducianism and the councils also back this up. They back it up in the way that they talk about Christ's redemption. Okay. Now, because of all these problems that we have from sin and because we are moving further and further away from God. Okay. Just as our bodies are deteriorating, our consciousness is deteriorating, our ability to think properly, our ability to relate to God, our wanting to search for God. And God knows this, okay? God is not that he looks down the tunnel of time. Think about it like this. God stands above time and space and looks down on everything and sees everything at once. It would be like if you have, if you have, um, photo software in your computer and you can look at an individual picture or you can zoom out by week, by month, by year, by, you know, what, whatever, however you can zoom back to say, okay, oh yeah, I wanted to go look at, you know, Christmas of 2005 and you zoom all the way back and you go to 2005 and you click on that. And, and what you're seeing is you see 2005 to 2016 and all those pictures that are in there in these bundles. And then you can zoom in on those different bundles. You in a way are standing over all that history and that time. And you can see it all at once. Just because you can't process it all at once doesn't destroy my illustration here. God sees all of it and processes all of it, understands all of it, knows all of it. He is static. It's all there in front of him. Okay. He knows what is going on and he knows what's going to happen. He can intervene in all those spots exactly where it needs to be done. It's not a problem. And it's not like he has to move through time and space as though he was spatially located it's that he transcends time and space because he is not centrally located. And he is just as active today as he was 2,000 years ago. And I don't mean that to say that he stopped being active 2,000 years ago. I mean to him, it is as though it was 2,000 years ago. 
time is of no relevance to God. Uh, scripture says that to him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He stands outside of time and space. He's not, he's not in it. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that this would happen. And so at the beginning, at the onset, in the book of Genesis, he says um, that he will make this right that he will do this, that he will fix this, and that he will do it through the seed of the woman. Okay, we talked about the seed of the woman. We talked about what that meant. Okay, and the reason why is because God said, I am going to do it in a way that is impossible for mankind to do. There is no way that mankind can do this. He can't fix what's what's wrong. And this is what's wrong. Now, we also have another problem that comes up because not only do we have the sin of Adam, but we also have our own sins that happen. And because the sinfulness of our of ourselves is in our soul and it's in our body and we're a body-soul unity, all we can do is produce sinful people. So something has to be done about that because nobody is born perfect. So this kind of kills Pelagius's argument right off the bat, that is it possible for somebody to potentially live the perfect sinless life? No, not at all. You, you can't because there's no starting point for it. You would have to, if, if, if let, let's say for an argument that Adam and Eve had children, okay, they had five kids, six kids, whatever, and then the fall took place, but only some of the lines were affected, but others weren't. And then there was, you know, marrying in between these different families of the ones tainted with sin and the ones that weren't. Then maybe you could make that argument. Or if you hold to a Stoic philosophy or a Gnostic philosophy or a, you know, a, a hard dualist rather than a Traducian understanding of the body-soul that God creates the soul. And then there is that chance because the, the seat of consciousness, which is the soul, that can actually uh, overcome the body by gaining more knowledge, by getting smarter, by getting better, by, by disciplining our mind, by disciplining ourselves, we can control our body and therefore we can save ourselves. Then that would be possible. But in a traducing worldview, it is an impossibility. So the Manekians... Of course, I disagree with, and they would disagree with me. The Pelagians, philosophically, from the start, I disagree with them because I disagree with their anthropology. And this is a reason why the majority of Arminians I would disagree with because of this starting point. Now, Adam's life cycle is less than ours. And in this way, that it seems that Adam was created fully formed as at least a young adult, teenager perhaps, okay? But we were created as children, as babies. Our parents created us, everybody knows how. And in doing so, the redemption that would need to take place could not be if somebody just showed up on the scene. If Christ just showed up fully formed as a man, as someone coming from the clouds, coming in the clouds, as the son of man coming on the clouds, as the, the Jews were looking for, they were looking for this messianic figure. I mean, somebody that nobody knows where they came from. And 
That's it. Just shows up. Um, then yeah, I, you know, we would have to look back at Adam and say, okay, well then he's the second Adam because of that. You know, when we talk about the Melchizedekian priesthood and that we don't know where Melchizedek is, no, no mother, no father. We don't know where he came from at all, that, 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 that becomes the issue. But here's the thing. We don't know because of the virgin birth where the natural father is. It's not. This is a miracle of the seed of the woman that God said that he would do. And because of that, possibly it is the seed of the man in which the immaterial as well as the material part, the sinfulness, that union of the sperm and the egg, that that is where the transference begins. And without that, you don't get that that sinful nature. Okay, you do have a corrupt nature from from Mary, from the mother. Um, you know, because you could speculate: Would Jesus have died if he wasn't crucified? Because you know, sin, you know, brought on uh, uh, death. The fall brought on you know sin and death. But with Christ, he had to be born as a baby, not only to fulfill prophecy, but as someone who fully represents us because we were sinful from birth. He had to represent us. He had to be born. So he had to have that sinless uh, birth, that sinless conception. He would have to grow up in perfect obedience. And this is all what's transferred to us. And he had to do that. So our lives, in that sense, are greater than Adam's. And this is why our sins have to be accounted for also. It couldn't have been that, well, the death on the cross was just for, you know, the, uh, the, the, the sin of Adam, for original sin, because Christ was fully representing us. And it's just fully representing us. This is the recapitulation view of the atonement that we talked about before, the necessity of it, that Christ had to redo everything for us to be our federal head. He had to pay a price. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned, an animal had to die in order for them to be covered. And the sacrificial system was put in place and that there was a cost that, you know, had to be paid, whether implicitly or explicitly, in order to cover, you know, what was happening, cover the shame. Now, with this understanding of all God, that God does it all, maybe someone wants to make the objection that, well, it's not all God because without Mary, you wouldn't have the vessel for which Christ to come through, God to be born as a baby to come through. And if that is your argument, then it would have to go back to Adam and Eve. Without Adam and Eve... God could not merit salvation. God, or I shouldn't say merit salvation. God cannot um, provide a sacrifice, a way, a way to be saved, because He needed Adam and Eve, and He needed all of mankind in order to uh, bring forth the Messiah. Now, I don't think we should get all high and mighty on ourselves about that. That you know, the, the fact that God needs us. In, in that sense, but God is demonstrating that it's all him. 
And when Christ comes, it's all about what he has done. Okay. So it seems that his death on the cross, when it accomplished two things, number one, the forgiveness of sins. And I do think that this does go back to the original sin as well as the sinfulness of all of us in, in all of our states. But then there's another side of it too, because of the, I don't want to say depreciation of mankind, but because mankind is getting mentally further and further away from God in the same way that we have physically, that nobody searches for him because nobody hears him, even though everything is there to tell us that God is there. You know, the fact that people cannot look up at the stars and marvel at that. And the fact that people can't say, where did this come from? Whatever this is, it doesn't matter. Where did it come from? And they can't use, you know, deductive reasoning in order to uh, come to the understanding that there is a God, that it's, it's almost impossible for them to do. Um, that really gives evidence to what we're talking about here. Now with the gospel, when I say the word gospel, what I mean is discussing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and what it meant. I do not mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I do not mean the Bible. If the Bible didn't exist, Jesus Christ still rose from the dead. There were Christians before there was a New Testament. There were Christians before there were creeds. There were Christians before there were baptismal formulas. There were Christians before anything that was going on. And I don't mean baptismal formulas by, you know, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as, as Christ gave us, but baptismal formulas on, you know, uh, sprinkling or dunking or, you know, the, the methods that you use. What I'm talking about is because of the believers in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, ones who believe, 42 times in the book of Acts, Christians are called either believers or the ones who believe. And that's what they believe in the resurrection. That that is what I mean by gospel when I say gospel. And this helps aid in salvation with this, this mental aspect of it. That people hear the gospel and some may be able to respond because they're not as deteriorated as others. And this is why I think that there's different kinds of apologetics. Because some people need different kinds of proof. Peter and the apostles, some of them, they just believed when they said, he appeared to us. He appeared to us. Oh, we believe, we believe. Thomas said, no, not unless I see. He needed a different kind of proof. I don't fault people for needing different kinds of proof. And I don't fault people for needing, you know, as much proof as we can possibly give them. We are obligated to do that as Christians, and we should do that. We should fight to do that because, because of that, they would then be able to understand the gospel and they would not be conformed to this world, but they would be transformed by the renewing of their mind that this is part of the process. And this is not a works-based salvation where if they believe, then they will be saved. I believe that it's more in line of a works-based salvation as the church is doing the work of God by taking the gospel out to people and people responding because they're explaining it properly that the works that we are in a way, it's it's synergistic, but it's not me doing it and accepting it. It is me explaining it. And I'll talk more about this here.
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Now, whenever I talk about this, I what I want to say is that the gospel, I believe, is organic. That the gospel is not something that can just be delivered by anyone or anything, I should say. It would probably be a better way. Because the angels know of the gospel. Okay, angels have discussed things with people before, but why is it the gospel? Why don't they just tell them? Cornelius's house in the uh, book of Acts, when they sent for Peter, um, they, they were God-fearers, and they said, send for Peter. Well, why didn't the angel just give the gospel? It seems that this type of knowledge, this type of transmission, this type of thing, the gospel message itself is as organic from person to person as sin was from person to person. That Jesus Christ being the second Adam, being the federal head, has done his work and has made things right. And because of that, the gospel can go out. And it's, it's a, a, a broad call. And depending on the degeneration of man, on whether or not they are coming to faith, it's based on, you know, us taking the gospel and being, explained, being able to explain the gospel and moving in that way. Now, I don't believe that that justifies anyone, okay? I believe that that is the sanctification part of it. The, the justification part is all God. Remember back when we talked about the fetus qua creditor and the fetus qua creditor? I do hold to that. I believe that God declares you to be righteous and therefore you are. It's a forensic declaration that God makes the ungodly, the that he declares them to be righteous, as it says in the book of Romans, and it is by the faithfulness of Christ alone that you are justified, that you are saved, and that that is justification, that we are saved by the grace of God for Christ's sake. It is because of what Christ did and for his sake that we are made righteous, that we are righteous. Okay? And because we are made righteous, because that calling is there, because that does exist, then the response of someone is under the obligation of the church taking the gospel message and being able to explain it. Christ's death was sufficient for all of mankind. It was more than sufficient. It was sufficient enough that it would redeem the entire universe if necessary. Everything everything. He created everything. He put everything right. It is, it's well above what is necessary. It is not, I don't hold to a uh, predestination aspect of God knows the number of people that will be saved. And those are the ones that he elected. I hold to the fact that God of course does know that number, that that number exists, but it, what he provided in order for us to be saved by what Christ did is far more powerful than what we receive. It's like, 
you know, if you have, if you have a cup, any, any type of cup, let, let's just say a, a 12 ounce cup and somebody puts a drop in it and says, see that cup holds a drop of water. Isn't that amazing? And it's like, yes, but you know what? It can hold a lot more. It can because it is sufficient. Now it's, it's, it's effective. It's efficient for holding that drop, but it can hold 12 ounces with Christ. It's limitless. It's completely limitless. It is, it, there is so much there that is going out, but the responsibility that we have in the sanctification aspect of it is explaining this. Can God find, you know, a, a Bushman somewhere that has never even heard the gospel and save him and declare him to be righteous? Absolutely. Does he? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But here's what I do know is that he has provided it for us this way, for us understanding this, okay, for for my culture, for my upbringing, for my raising to do this and to tell other people. And so I'm obligated to do that. Now, the exact details of well, did he decree this first and then decree that second and then decree that third? Or was it like this? No, I don't, I don't know. I don't care. I, I, it, scripture doesn't say. But you know what it does say? It, it says that God is going to make it right on his own. It says that God's going to do it. It says that God did it. It says that God says that you're just, says that you're righteous, and therefore you are just and you are righteous. It says that he has forgiven you of your sins. You have been forgiven of your sins and you have an alien righteousness, which is Christ, which he sees you as not only just perfect in what you've done, but it's as though you live the life that Christ did. You are a righteous person. You can go before the throne of God. You are positionally righteous. You are simulated with peccator. At the same time, you are justified and you are a sinner. This is why... I don't agree with the Calvinist perspective of um, the uh, limited atonement. I, 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 I'll tell you what. I agree with it in the sense that there is a particular number of people that will be saved. I disagree with it with saying that it's because God individually chose those people and allowed the others to just slide by. I disagree with that. I don't I don't think that he did. I think that he made it to the point where we are just as responsible for sin as we are for salvation in this aspect. But God ultimately is the one who declares you are righteous. He's the one who says fides qua creditor. The faith by which you believe is different than the faith that you believe, the faith, the faith that you confess, the fides quae creditor. And maybe this puts me in line. Maybe a lot of uh, Armenians are like, hooray, you know, and whatever. I don't, I don't care. Um, you know, you, you can't be in that point. If, if you agree with me, I agree with you. If you disagree with me, I disagree with you. I just don't see it. Christ lived this perfect life, did all these things. The Old Testament is full of rules and rituals and examples. You know, do not wear you know, poly cotton blend clothing. Don't eat hot dogs. You know, don't eat cheeseburgers. Why? 
Why a cheeseburger? What's the big deal about eating a cheeseburger? Because God wanted them to know that you don't mix perfection and imperfection. You don't mix good and evil. You don't mix, you know, sin with with non-sin, with, with, with perfection. Milk is the scene as, you know, um, life-giving, a life-giving substance, where meat is seen as the death of something, okay? If you mix life and death together, that's what he's saying. No, we don't do, I'm not like that. I require perfection. This is why Christ had to come. This is why he had to be perfect. We have drifted away because of our sin and it makes it difficult for us to do this perfection stuff. This is why I believe the governmental view and the moral example views are important to understand that God justifies and elects those not only individually, he does individually, but also corporately. It's the whole point of the election understanding. Everybody agrees with election. God elected Israel. God, during the Passover, remember during the Passover when we talked about that, when we talked about the liturgy, the father-son liturgy, you know, that he said to, you know, the, the son, when the, when the son asked him during the liturgy, uh, Dad, why is it that we do this thing on this light? Why is this night different than the other nights? And he responds to him, because we do this, because we remember that God has brought, I do this because I remember that God has brought me out of Egypt. You make it personal. It's not that, you know, God um, saved our family. It's not that God saved our people. It's not that, you know, um, oh, uh, how should I put it? It's not that God saved our, our nation, our country, or anything like that. It is that God has saved me. And God has saved his people. It is not an either or, it is a both and. And I think that we should understand it as a both and. Just like when it comes to communion, when it comes to the Eucharist, is it the body and blood of Christ or is it the is it just bread and wine? In my opinion, yes. The Bible says this is the body and blood of Christ and it says that it is the bread and wine. If you take it any further than that, in one direction or the other, you're in error. By saying it ceases to be one or the other, you're in error. This is what we're told. This is what we should understand. This is what the whole point of the Old Testament was for. I mean, go back to, uh, what was it, um, part nine in the Theology Pit series where I discussed the importance of it being the blood. And this is why I also hold to a sanitive view when it comes to uh, sanctification, that the sacraments actually do mean something. And we are getting God's grace in that way. We're not getting this justifying grace but we are getting a sanctifying grace. And when I talk about our faith and I talk about us having faith or believing in Christ, I define faith as notitia, census, and fiducia, that we have to have knowledge about something, that we have to agree with it, and that we have to trust in it, and that that is what makes up faith. 
blind faith is not biblical. A lot of people have said, let's, as Christians, stop using the word faith, that we don't have faith because faith has gotten changed in this culture. I understand those sentiments. I understand what people are saying. Yes, why, why should we say that we have something that the world has defined that we actually don't and misrepresents us? No, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead because it's a historical fact, because it actually happened, not because I have wishful thinking that I want it to. Okay, that's not what faith is. So with the moral example view, what we can take from that is what Christ did. And we should look at that and say, yes, because he first loved us, we should love others. Because he was obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross, we should be obedient also. Yes, he died, but he was raised three days later. And his promise is that we will be raised also. So why wouldn't we follow God completely? Why wouldn't we speak boldly about our faith? Why wouldn't we want to encourage one another? Why wouldn't we want to go out and fight the good fight, run the good race, to do these good things, to spread the gospel? We should want to do that. We should do everything that we can. I know there are certain things that, that limit us, but you know, all that is done between the governmental view and the moral example view so that we can know about God and the image of God in us, that we are in the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei is the image of God. It is said that that is how we have been created. Not that we're like carbon copies or something, but the image that's given is if you look at a coin and you look at the raised image of the coin, that's, that's what the, the imagery that they're using when they talk about us being in the image of God, the Imago Dei. That's what it's all about. Now, with Christ living this perfect life and doing this, and, and we look at the, the sacramental system, Okay, the, the satisfaction view of the atonement, what the Roman Catholics hold to. It's not unreasonable. Having a pope is not unreasonable. Okay, Living that type of life of penance and servitude is not unreasonable. When it comes to sanctification, that type of stuff, the discipleship stuff, that is good to have. It's good to have a spiritual hierarchy. And I say this because I say that there are some who have learned more about God and have studied more about God and been led by the Spirit to be able to explain better about God into professions and that that, that is a hierarchical understanding. It doesn't mean that they're any more justified because God justifies everybody. We're on an even plateau there, just like everybody will be glorified, even plateau. But in sanctification... In the separation, there does seem to be this, I don't want to say tier system, but this type of tier system that we are to strive. Have you ever met people and you're like, man, are they godly? Those are just, it just oozes out of them. And then you've met other people, you know, and you say that they're godly because of the way that they give and the way that they help others and the way they administer and then there are other people where you listen to them preach and you're like, wow, wow, they're godly. You listen to the way they teach. Wow, that's so wonderful. You look at the way that, you know, some people work with children. 
the way that some people can, you know, help run the church, keep the lights on, balance the budget, you know, do those sort of things. The way people will get involved in, you know, political affairs in order to help us so that we can, you know, actually live in a country where we can continue to worship. But what happens if there's an imbalance and that starts to fall away? I'm sure that you can guess. I'm sure that you have that, you know, that understanding. Um, if the church becomes the government, as we saw from the, you know, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, it gets the same problem as the government does corruption, you know, anything that has that, that type of human institution, you're going to have a natural decay. I mean, that's, that's all. I mean, that's the whole thing with, with the Bible. I mean, you have like Jesus would perform a miracle, but natural laws took effect after. I mean, he turns water into wine. What happens to it? Well, probably turned into vinegar, you know? He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus still died. Natural processes still took over after the miracle occurred. Okay? So the miracle of, you know, the church being birthed, if there was a problem, you know, from natural decay, hey, look at that. Look at what happens. And this is why the Reformation was so important, because it was to reform. Okay? Not to be separatists but to reform, to say, yes, look at this. The veneration of the saints, whether or not you agree with it, the most basic understanding is to tell the stories of people that came before and how they lived for God. It encourages us. It strengthens us. That's not a bad idea. Having feasts and holy days so that we can remember at certain times of the year what God has done is not a bad thing. It's all through the Old Testament. That's what the Israelites were doing. To have liturgical worship where the liturgy itself is telling the story of what people went through. Even if the imagery is lost on you, it doesn't mean it's not there. Rediscover it. It's there for a reason. Christ took the penalty that we were supposed to have. That's the governmental view. In a nutshell, it shows us what God thinks of sin how much he hates it, and to run from it. In some pseudepigraphal works, um, there is an account of the Apostle John being at somewhere, a bathhouse or something like that, where there was someone, I don't know if they were a politician or what they were, who would say uh, you know, wrong things about Christ, bad things about Christ, those sort of things. And, and, and in the work, he would run out of there screaming, let us all leave, get out of this place before God knocks it down, hits it with lightning, destroys it, and it collapses on all of us because this sinner is in there. I mean, it's a pseudepigraphal work, okay? It's somebody that's claiming to write uh, with authority. But the mindset is still there, all right? The mindset is still there on how serious God takes sin, and I think that we should also. I think that that's a lesson for us. I think it's a good lesson to take. I think that the understanding of Christ being covered in blood while he was dying on the cross and that the high priest on you know, the Day of Atonement you know, being covered in, um, covered in blood at the Passover, being co- totally covered in the blood of the Lamb, all that imagery is there. All that symbolism is there. Everything that comes from a liturgical understanding and the the way that the liturgy presents it and everything that's going on, it's to remind us it is a history book. Doing worship like that, that is a historical part of 
what we are and what the Holy Spirit is doing and to remind us it is our living, breathing, physical, made up of human beings reminder of the goodness of Christ and what has been done. To throw that away and to say, no, we don't need that and then just go to some basic uh, free worship style. I'm not saying the free worship style in and of itself is wrong. I'm saying it's incomplete. It's incomplete in that aspect of it. It's as incomplete in its physicalness as I would say the Roman Catholic liturgy is incomplete in its um, immaterial aspect of it, in its understanding of the application of the atonement, that it's not sanitive, that it's forensic. If I went to a Roman Catholic church that held to a a forensic understanding that God says that you're justified and you are the doctrine of justification by the faithfulness of Christ alone or the doctrine of faith or justification by faith. I don't, I I can't see any problem with Roman Catholic worship. There is none. If you want to talk about what we have problems with veneration of the saints because people pray to them and they pray to Mary and stuff like that. No, if they're praying to the saints as a means to God instead of through Christ, then they need to stop it because they don't know what they're doing. Okay? And they they don't know what veneration is. Within Roman Catholicism, you have um, dulia, which is veneration. Hyperdulia, which is given to Mary. But latria, which is worship, is only given to God. And I'm not the one saying this. Um, uh, Roman Catholic apologists have said this. Dr. Scott Hahn, in his uh, work, Answering Common Objections to the Catholic Faith, I think he put it out in 1991, um, audio series. I think there might be a video series also. You can find it on YouTube. He says this in talking about the veneration of the saints. So don't mischaracterize them. Characterize them. Well, however you say it. Uh, don't do that because it shows that you just might not understand. If you don't understand the application of the atonement, the difference between the sanative and the forensic, then you know, stop complaining about Roman Catholicism saying that they're trying to merit God's favor when you're trying to merit it in a totally different way. If you hold to a view that says that I have to do this, 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 and this, and then I become a child of God, and then I am saved. If I have to you know, repent of my sins and turn from my sins and, and you know, confess them and, and quit sinning, and then accept Christ as my Lord and Savior, and then I will be saved. It's no different than, than paying money to pray in front of some relics, venerating the saints, getting God's grace however you can in order to be saved. It's the exact same thing, and I reject it. I reject all of it. I reject the Baptist teaching of that. I reject the Anabaptist teaching of that. I reject any teaching of that. It's a hill that I will fight and die on. If I'm pressed on it, I, I will say, no, it is all God and it is not us. It is not a sanative action. It is not a, we personally do these things to then merit God's favor. We are not saved because God pours something into us, which changes our heart, and then we accept God, and then we are saved. No, God declares us righteous. Then we have grace that is poured into us, and we are being sanctified through that. We are getting grace in that way. Grace is defined, I could say, as, as, as twofold, as, you know, it is a justification by him saying it forensically, and it is a sanative. 
and that that sanitive aspect of it is not by just doing the sacraments or accepting the sacraments, whether they be, you know, baptism and you talk about baptismal regeneration or that of washing away original sin or whatever, whatever you're saying, that's, you know, it's wrong in that aspect of it, but that you do it because it is something that aids in your salvation in the area of sanctification and that it is not just limited to ordinances, which, which Christ said to do, which he declared that, that we should do. That it seems to be more that when we are serving others in any capacity, that that is this type of grace that is flowing to us and from us. That God has given us this ability to help others and to show them how he has helped all of us. And when people believe that, it's because God has declared them to be just. If people say, no, it's the power of the gospel that goes out and people have to believe the gospel, then why is it that not every single person who goes to a Billy Graham crusade is saved? Everyone heard the same gospel. Everyone heard the same message. Why did it resonate with some and not with others? And I know that there's all kinds of reasons behind that. Oh, well, you know, that person, I mean, uh, the Calvinists would say, well, they weren't chosen. They're not of the elect. Uh, the um, Armenians would say, well, they, they have just a hard heart. They have a heart of stone. Um, you know, they, or, you know, their free will, they were free to reject it. Um, you know, or whatever. No, either the gospel has power or it doesn't. And it's up to us to deliver it, but not every, it doesn't hit everybody the same way because it has to be explained differently to everybody. And everybody has to accept it in that aspect. This is a sanctification process. This is not a justification process. Is it possible for somebody to reject the gospel and still be justified because God has chosen them? I don't ever see any evidence of that. Hypothetically, doesn't seem to. Is it possible for someone to truly believe the gospel and not be saved? Possibly. I don't know. I don't see any evidence of it. Hypothetically, maybe. Whenever you move into a realm where you say, I am saved because and then you mention anything that you've done, you're in the wrong. If you say, I am justified because God has declared it. Influence. That has been, I've been brought up in. I was brought up in a Christian culture, in a Christian society, in a Christian family home, and that's why I'm a Christian. People would say, well, if you were brought up as a Hindu, would you be a Hindu? I don't know, maybe. But there are people that are brought up Christians that are atheists and people who are brought up atheists as Christians. People who are brought up as Muslims became Christians and people who are brought up as Hindus became Christians. But it's more likely that you are going to be a Christian with that influence. And again, this goes back to the desire thing, our greatest desire, that we do not have free will because not everybody has that same opportunity. Now, is Christ's death ontologically necessary? Yes. Is knowledge of it also necessary for salvation? Yes, in the sanctification realm of it. Justification? No. Abram was not searching for God. He was godless. He was not looking at all, and God declared the ungodly to be 
just, as the book of Romans tells us. That God had to do something. That God had to come in. That God had to make the covenant. The covenant that God made is with him and with the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. And through that relationship, we are justified because of what Christ did. This is what I hold to. Now, there might be some parts of it that I haven't explained very well, or maybe there are some parts that you would like to know about. Well, you know, what about, um, you know, sinless perfectionism? I don't think that that exists. I think it's unnecessary. It's again, you trying to live perfectly or even saying, well, I don't sin anymore because I've been made a new creation. Now you've been made a new creation in Christ. You have not been made a new creation outside of Christ. You've been made a new creation in Christ, meaning that it's in him and in his life and his life is now your life. And that is how you live a sinless life. It is through Christ. It is not through yourself. Whenever you try to make it through yourself, then that is where you error. But the doctrine of justification is not based on your error any more than it's based on your orthodoxy, your right belief. It is because God has declared you just. You can actually be a Christian and be wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. You can be mistaken and you're still saved. You can believe wrong things and you're still justified. We don't push those limits. Nobody wants to. Nobody has a desire to because our desire is different because of what Christ has done. We desire to not sin. We desire to go in that other direction. We have a guilt because of it and we repent of it. We say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. Not because I have to in order to merit my salvation or to remain saved. I do it because I really am. I really am sorry. And I really am grateful for what he has done. And I wish, I wish that I could be that perfect example for people. But I can't. I'm I'm horrible. I'm probably not the worst Christian, but I'm not the best Christian. I'm just trying. And I'm striving. And I know that I'll never be good enough in myself. And that's okay. Because I'm good enough in Christ. Because Christ was good enough. This is what I mean when I say that I'm saved. And what I mean when I say that I'm justified. And why I'm glad that I can be wrong. You see, within covetism you can actually be completely wrong and reject the doctrine of justification by faith alone, however you understand that, whether it's by the faithfulness of Christ or whether it's by your own faith that's saving you. It doesn't matter. Whether you're you know, going to Mass, whether you're praying before relics, whether you're partaking of the sacraments, whether you have, you know, a spiritual birthday, because that's when you ask Jesus to save you. And, you know, by you doing so you're saved, however you want to merit, it doesn't matter because it doesn't change the fact that this is what God is doing and has done. You can reject the gravity all day long, but it still affects you. 
you can reject the doctrine of justification by faith, the faithfulness of Christ alone, but it still is, and you still are. You can fight that tooth and nail, but that's exactly how you're saved, and that's exactly why you have the assurance of the once saved, always saved, as people, some pejoratively like to say it. You are once saved, always saved, because it's not up to you. It was all up to Christ. I don't know what more I can say on this topic. If you'd like to hear more um, on this particular topic, please email me, samson at samsonstick.com. Leave a message on the Theology Pit on Facebook. Um, you can get a hold of me, samsonstick.com. Uh, all this stuff is going to be uh, archived in the Salvation section. And um, I think this is where I'm going to end the series. This is what I believe. This is what I hold to. This is how I know and understand that I'm saved. And of all the learning that I've ever done, all the studying that I've ever done, one of the most important things that I could leave you with is something that I learned a long time ago in Greek. And it is, Ha Jesus me agapa ha keruse. And I probably said that wrong. There are probably some Greek people out there listening to it saying, what? Now you messed that all up. Roughly translated, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I hold to that because the Bible is what tells me. Church history is what tells me. The saints of old are what tell me. The church fathers are what tell me. The councils tell me. Everybody says, outside of Christ, there is no salvation. But in Christ, in Christ is the hope of eternal life. In Christ is perfection. In Christ is the resurrection. In Christ is our future. And it's wonderful. It is the glory. And I look forward to seeing all of you. If we never meet in this period, I look forward to seeing you uh, maybe in heaven, but definitely on the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you very much uh, for listening to Theology Pit. I got a new microphone, so this may sound different. But uh, please be sure to, hey, if you want to leave a message or a couple bucks, I'd appreciate that too. And now it is definitely time to close down the door.